Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Jude Rogers. As we try to emerge blinking like rabbits from the COVID-19 pandemic, the idea of burrowing into a book that explores global annihilation, carnage and apocalypse might seem unwise. But Sir He Plocky's books are just the ones we should be reading right now. Fascinating, pacey retellings of key events from recent international history that teach us fresh lessons. They unearth new details through old-fashioned, crate-digging research and make old stories feel brutally relevant. Sirhi's last book, Chernobyl History of a Tragedy, won the 2018 Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, and his new book, Nuclear Folly, A New History of the Cuban Missile Crisis, comes out this month. It's jaw-dropping. Taking the reader almost day by day from the start of John F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidency in late 1960, through the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, to the four weeks where the world held its breath in October and November 1962, it uses some remarkable new material, including unearthed KGB documents from archives opened up after the 2014 Ukrainian revolution. Individual reports, in fact, from agents who travelled covertly on all the ships from the USSR to Cuba with nuclear missiles on board. A professor of history at Harvard University since 2007, Serhii was born in Ukraine in 1957, so knows the culture of the Soviet Union firsthand, and did his undergraduate studies in the USSR during the Cold War before his move to North America in the 1990s. He also writes in the British press, most recently about Boris Johnson's decision to increase the cap on Britain's nuclear stockpiles, more of which later, and how experiencing COVID-19 during the final days of the Trump presidency has reminded him of the government messaging after Chernobyl. I'm delighted to have him here with me today. Hello, Serhi, and thanks for joining us today on The Bunker. Hello. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can I ask you, before we dig into the book, what part did the Cuban Missile Crisis play in Soviet history when you were growing up? There was no really mention anywhere in the, in the textbooks or in the publications that uh, appeared in the 70s. That's where I started to get interested in the history and international relations. There were no mention about the crisis. So I first heard about the crisis from a neighbor who served in the uh, Soviet army during the crisis. And he told me that, okay, there was a moment when everyone expected there would be a nuclear war. And I, I thought, no, 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 th- th- this is impossible. I never never heard about that, never read about that. So really, after, after the Oster of, uh, of Khrushchev in 1964, the Soviet leadership didn't want to talk about Cuban Missile Crisis, didn't want to go back to that story. Uh, to the story of the nuclear war per se. But there was another story that was really pushed very hard, that what uh, Cuban crisis was about was about actually the advance of communism uh, on, on the world arena, that that was the first case where a socialist country emerged on the map of the world without a world war. That was the only reference. What really happened there, how it happened, uh, all of that was really covered by secrecy. And, and that was also deep down one of reasons why I researched the book, why I wrote the book. I wanted to know what, what was hidden from me when I was growing up. So let's move on to the book. Um, tell us about the new material you brought to it, including the recently declassified KGB files. How did you come about them and what was it like to dig into them? The new material comes on two levels. One are the uh, mostly memoirs of the Soviet participants of the crisis. 
And they have been published and published for the last maybe 20 years, 25 years, but they never made into the, at least in the mainstream. And the second level are these uh, recently declassified uh, KGB files. And when I uh, started to work on the Cuban Missile Crisis, I didn't expect really that I would find anything in Kiev, right, about Cuba. Uh, decisions were made in Moscow. And I went to the archivist and they said, okay, th this is the topic. Could you please help me? They said, no, probably not. You would have to go to the military archive. I went there. There was nothing. They moved all the files to Moscow in the mid-1970s. And then the archivist told me, you know what, there was this special, special division of the KGB that was in charge of the Black Sea Navy and Black Sea Merchant Fleet. And uh, maybe you want to look at those materials. And I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's that's where I found the reports of the KGB officers. So every every ship that went to Cuba had a KGB officer on board who was reporting on the morale, who was reporting on what soldiers and officers were talking about and also were reporting about their stay in Cuba and then return back. And they're really, really very interesting on a number of levels. One of them is just to find out what the Soviet uh, soldiers thought about being sent to Cuba. They, they didn't want to go there, at least many of them didn't want to go there. And then in terms of the contribution to our understanding of the, of the crisis, there are two major things where those archives, the KGB archives, help us to understand what went and what happened. The first level is the fact that the deployment of the more than 40,000 of the Soviet troops on the island, plus the ballistic missiles, plus the tactical nuclear weapons, it turned out to be a major, major uh, intelligence failure when it comes to the United States of America. The Americans thought that there were only 10,000 uh, troops. They never knew until the end of the Cold War that there were also tactical weapons. And the KGB files uh, helped to explain us how that actually happened, that the, the poor Soviet soldiers were hidden in the twin decks, overheated twin decks during the most of their trip to, to Cuba. The second one is the sense of uh, humiliation that the Soviet troops and, and their commanders, including generals and admirals, felt when they were withdrawn from Cuba. And it wasn't withdrawal per se, but it was the way how it was done. Because Khrushchev never convinced Castro to allow the American or UN representatives or inspectors on the sovereign territory of Cuba, the inspections were done in the sea when the Soviet captains and commanders were actually forced to open their twin decks to show the missiles that they were bringing back to the Soviet Union. And uh, the uh, Soviet Minister of Defense, Marshal Malinovsky, later, when two years later, Khrushchev was ousted, he uh, gave a speech to his commanders and said, never in the history either Russian army or Soviet army suffered that kind of humiliation. And KGB reporting tells us actually what was going on there when the order was uh, received to show the missiles. The military refused to do that. The captains of the ships were trying to convince them to do that. So it, it was quite a drama on the, on the high seas, way 
it was already November of 1962, technically the 13 days crisis that is described in Robert uh, Kennedy's book was already over. But another crisis was only starting, and that's the, the, the crisis of mistrust between the military, Soviet military commanders and their commander-in-chief, Nikita Khrushchev. There's so much detail um, about the human stories on board. One that really struck me was the story of the mechanic on the ship en route to Cuba who got appendicitis, and he was operated on board because they didn't want him to leave the ship because that might expose what was going on, um, the seasickness, the you know the levels of detail. It humanises it in a way that I've never read before. What surprised you most um, from the research that you did? Nobody on the ship knew where they were going until they were already in the Atlantic. So that that adds this another layer of emotions and another layer of this of this sad irony. That was probably the most surprising part. Another thing that I didn't know really about, no one writes about this, this, this level of humiliation that the Soviets suffered. But when they were also writing and reporting that the Cuban military commanders or, or the political authorities never attended the ceremonies, never actually said goodbye or thank you to them when they were leaving. And they really felt down because of that, because in their mind they were saving revolution and, and were saving Cuba from, quote, imperialist aggression. And they were not thanked for that. And the reason was that Castro felt that he was betrayed. Castro is known as a, as, as a communist, and he declared to be a communist after the Bay of Pigs invasion. But in reality, he was someone who was leading this anti-imperialist revolution. He wasn't going to allow either Washington or Moscow to push him around or to ignore him. So uh, there was a major crisis at, at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a major crisis in the Soviet-Cuban relations. And uh, again, it's not like this is completely unknown, but this is not, certainly not part of the dominant narrative and uh, the KGB KGB documents helped me also to look to look at that part of the story. And again, that was on, on a certain level quite surprising for me. It's really interesting how he comes across. I was struck by a line you mentioned that he said years later, we didn't really like the missiles, which is such an offhand way of describing, you know, that complicated situation. You also give a lot of detail about the day-to-day lives of JFK and Khrushchev. You talk about Kennedy's early days of presidency. Obviously, he was young. He was relatively inexperienced against Eisenhower. But he was also in an interesting position because he was trying to put or he was trying to present a new face, as you put it, to America's sister republics in Latin America um, that didn't appear overly combative. How would you describe his um, circumstances back then? Well, he was... um... Again, someone who was trying to change American foreign policy and certainly the image of the United States uh, when it uh, comes to Latin America. He personally was supportive of the uh, social transformations that were happening in Latin America at that time. So he, uh, unlike Eisenhower, he didn't think that the agricultural reform that was uh, done in Cuba was a necessary, necessarily bad thing. 
But he found himself also in a situation where uh, many other American presidents or Western leaders, for that matter, were either before him or after him. And that was the concern that the uh, social change and uh, agricultural reform can, in fact, bring the communism to Latin America, to the American uh, backyard. And ironically, by uh, trying to stop that from doing, they were actually helping to bring communism to, to Latin America, including to countries like Cuba. I already mentioned that uh, Fidel Castro declared himself to be a communist after the Bay of Pigs invasion. Before that, he, he never would say that, and I believe that he wasn't really a communist. But after the Bay of Pigs, he had no much of a choice but to try to get as close as possible, ideologically and otherwise, to one of the superpowers. It was Cold War. The world was divided between capitalism and communism. And if you wanted to survive in this conflict with the United States, you needed assistance, you need help of another, of another superpower. So at the end of the day, again, Kennedy had this well intentions, but certainly it didn't go well in Cuba. And then it was on Kennedy's watch when uh, the United States got in, involved in Vietnam. And again, the story was the same. You, you have this uh, nationalist, basically anti-colonial revolution. The U.S. is concerned that it's, it's, it's really a communist one and that it, it is essential for the, uh, for the winning the Cold War. So it's, in a sense, it's a little bit of tragic story of well-intentioned president who really keeps doing what, what his predecessors were doing. And he inherited the plan to invade Cuba from Eisenhower. He tried to execute it, but unlike Eisenhower, he didn't want to show his hand. He, at the end, he refused to give full support to the invasion force, which was made out of emigres, and that created a major disaster in the, in the American foreign policy. It was, of course, a wonderful thing for Castro. It was a wonderful thing for Khrushchev. And it uh, sent, sent Castro into the communist camp, but it also sent a message to Khrushchev that he was dealing with really very weak and inexperienced president. And probably without the Bay of Pigs invasion and, and failure of that invasion, uh, I don't think there would be Cuba and there would be Cuban crisis in the way how the world experienced it. The US, you also write, suspect very little early on of what's going on in Cuba because their attentions are focused more on Berlin. Obviously, the wall has just gone up in August 1961. And then you have this fascinating, almost day-by-day narrative of these journeys by ship um, about the use of Guinea in West Africa as a stopping off point on the way to Cuba, the incredible numbers of people and missiles that the Soviets managed to transport. It also really struck me that people who pop up in the story like um, Dmitry Yazov, who was the last Soviet Minister of Defence, and Gorbachev, albeit one who tried to stage a coup, admittedly, but he was on board one of these trips. And it made me really think about how short the time was between the Cuba Missile Crisis and Perestroika. Does this tally with how you're trying to teach us how very recent the Cuban Missile Crisis was and how recent this recent history is? 
Indeed, it is recent on many ways. And again, uh, Yazov is, is one of the characters that really links together 1962 and 1991. There is also another character who is in the book, and his name uh, was General Gripkov. Mm. General Gripkov was someone who was a key uh, in a key role as a planner of the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis. He was also in charge of the Warsaw Pact troops in the 1980s, at the time of the Polish crisis of 1980-1981, the Solidarity Crisis. And uh, then in 1992, he um, attended, uh, already after the end of the Cold War, after the fall of the Soviet Union, he attended a conference uh, on the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis in Havana, where uh, Fidel Castro was, and Robert McNamara, the American uh, Secretary of Defense at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the time of uh, uh, Vietnam War, and it was Gripkov who told McNamara and others that there were not 10,000 Soviet troops, but there were 43,000 Soviet troops on, on the island. He told the Americans and others that the Soviets had tactical nuclear weapons, not only ballistic missiles. And again, that was a major, major shock to McNamara, the, the, uh, the people who were around him. Uh, were writing later that he had to study himself, not really to fall, literally. And uh, after that, McNamara uh, gave an interview where he said, well, if, if, if there would be an invasion, something that the military insisted on, the chances of the nuclear war would be 99% in, in his mind. So again, the, the, there are these people who, who linked, who linked 19, 62 with, with really developments of uh, late 80s and even early 90s. On the other hand, I was really surprised, uh, again, all, all that happens within the lifespan of, of one person, but how, how dramatically the world changed in terms of the communications. Khrushchev, for example, had to transmit his responses to Kennedy through the Radio Moscow, because he believed that was the easiest way to get to the White House, because a normal letter, a normal telegram would go to the American embassy in Moscow. It would have to be put into the cipher code, then sent to Washington, then deciphered again, and then delivered to the White House. So the whole thing would take actually more than one day. Yeah. And you think, oh my gosh, we are really today in a different world. The U-2 airplanes that uh, played such such an important role in the Cuban Missile Crisis, they became obsolete with the arrival of the satellites. So there are these changes in technology, but uh, I'm afraid there is little change in the human psychology and, and the way how we deal with the threat. It's still very much the same. And for me, that sends a very, very worrisome signal that things like the Cuban Missile Crisis could can repeat themselves, really. You have one positive note in the book, which was that um, nuclear disaster was avoided thanks to one very human reason, which was fear. How do we convey the fear about the Cuban Missile Crisis today? You know, I'm guessing reading your book for starters, Fear was indeed indeed something that played an important role in that entire story. That was one of very few things, actually, that Khrushchev and Kennedy had in common, that they shared. 
The point that I'm trying to make in, in my book uh, as a whole and in the introduction and conclusions in particular is that I don't want people to be particularly fearful. I want people to be educated, educated about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but in close relation to the world in which we are today. This is a common knowledge. This is nothing particularly new or surprising for people who are engaged in writing about those things or think about that on the daily basis. They know that quite well. The problem from my perspective, from my point of view, is that there is very little awareness when it comes to the public as a whole. And the story of the 1960s and Cuban Missile Crisis as part of that is the story in which the arms control was started not by the governments, but by the public, by people who mobilized, trying to stop the nuclear tests in the atmosphere that were, of course, with the fallouts, nuclear fallouts, polluting the atmosphere, and then mobilization to impose arms control as well. So the public as a whole played an extremely important role in the 60s and 70s and 80s during the Cold War, putting the arms race under some form of a control, creating a somewhat predictable environment. And uh, uh, again, history never repeats itself to the to, to the latter. But uh, my my perception and insight that I bring to the story as a historian is that probably we will not be able to put the new arms race under control without public involvement, and there will be no public involvement unless public uh, is knows about what is going on. So. It's, it's not about fair, it's, it's about education and again bringing history also to shed light on the moment in which we are today, in which we are now. And your book does that in such detail. It was uh, fascinating and terrifying to read, but uh, it's a very important book. Thank you so much for speaking to us on The Bunker today. Well, it was my pleasure, Judith. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for listening, everyone else, to today's Bunker Remember, there's a new bunker every day from Monday to Thursday and a new Saturday edition too. We're moving Fridays so it doesn't clash with our sibling show, Well, God, What Now? Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can support the show on Patreon too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening. Don't have nightmares. And we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Bob Masters production. <laughs>